This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. For nearly two years, fear of COVID-19 has eclipsed the public health's attention to other diseases that afflict and kill far more people than the COVID-19 virus. While the public has isolated, masked, and taken more than 7 billion COVID vaccines globally, traditional threats to life from cancer, diabetes, and heart disease have not gone away. Unfortunately, since the outbreak in early 2020, many individuals' fear of COVID have led them to avoid doctor visits, screenings, and treatment that could identify and treat their disease. This neglect of other lethal but treatable conditions may already be leading to more Americans to die from fear of COVID than will die from COVID itself. How can public health officials correct course from a message that has discouraged all discretionary treatment during the initial phase of the pandemic to one that sounds a loud alarm that we must return our attention to detection and treatment of traditional and far more deadly threats to human health? My guest today is Dr. Bill Smith, visiting life science fellow at Pioneer Institute in his new research piece entitled An Impending Tsunami in Mortality from Traditional Diseases. Dr. Smith makes the case that our complete focus on COVID-19 has averted the public health's attention away from more lethal conditions such as cancer and heart disease. This lack of attention for other treatable deadly diseases coupled with the fear engendered by COVID-19 may well result in more deaths attributable to fear of COVID than to the disease itself. When I return, I'll be joined by Pioneer Institute's Dr. Bill Smith. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by a visiting fellow in life sciences at Pioneer Institute and a good friend of the Hubwonk podcast, uh, Dr. Bill Smith. Welcome back to the show, Bill. Thank you, Joe. Glad to be here. Well, I wanted to talk to you uh, or with you about the newest research piece that you just released uh, entitled An Impending Tsunami in Mortality from Traditional Diseases and Implications for Public Health. Uh, it really uh, struck me hard, uh, and it gave me a lot to think about. Um, let's start at the beginning for the benefit of our listeners with some background. Uh, I'll just throw in that we are now approaching the uh, second uh, year uh, of, uh, of COVID since it was first discovered in in China in 2019, hence COVID-19. Uh, the disease has reached every part of the world. Uh, we know now we have new strains, the, COVID the Delta variant, which are both uh, more contagious and more deadly. Uh, and you know these are this is the the bad news. Uh, the good news is that um, we've got some effective, safe vaccines and therapies. Uh, in fact, uh, an earlier episode of Hubwonk, uh, we we featured the fact that uh, we hope to be approaching zero COVID deaths very very soon. Uh, so this is where we begin. Um, your paper starts out with some background on how deadly COVID is, and compares to some of the diseases mankind has experienced in the past. Let's start at the very beginning. Uh, how how bad and how deadly is COVID compared to other things mankind has encountered? Well, it's not as deadly as HIV. Uh, it, it's not as, as deadly probably as the, the Spanish flu. Um, and maybe that's due to therapeutics and vaccines. Um, it, but it's even not as deadly as some of our current traditional diseases. So there, COVID is now probably the number two or three killer in the country. Uh, and there was a point in January and February where it was the number one killer. But there was also a point 
when it was the number seven killer. So it's a dangerous disease. I, I, what I'm not saying in this paper is that we should ignore COVID. Uh, but what I'm saying in this paper is that it's it's not the number one killer. And I think public health authorities, I want to take them to task a little bit because they've ignored uh, the public health campaigns to have people go and get diagnostic tests for more traditional diseases. I, I focus on cardiovascular disease, but you could look at any disease state, cancer, mammograms, diabetes, A1C tests. There's a whole bunch of diagnostic screenings that fell off the cliff during COVID. So um, I, I want to unpack that one, one piece at a time. I guess uh, Hubwonk might be part of that whole uh, uh, movement. Uh, certainly, we dedicated quite a few episodes to, to COVID. And uh, I, I would agree that COVID seems to have eclipsed all other uh, health, public health issues, uh, definitely to the detriment of, of the public health. Uh, where do you think we went? Um, we, we lost our way. So we have, you know, in January, February, uh, we discovered this disease. It was rampant in, in um, China and Italy, and it ultimately arrived on our shores. I remember quite well when everything locked down in early March. Um, where uh, you, you have to expect the public to be uh, frightened and uh, focused on something not well known, not uh, never before seen. Uh, where, you know, if you were a public health person, where where did we lose our way in the beginning? I, I, I didn't, I won't even say and criticize public health officials in the beginning because there was so much, there was such a lack of knowledge about how severe this disease was, how quickly it was going to spread. And public health, health officials were groping around, understandably, trying to figure out uh, how this, how how deadly this disease was going to be. So I'm not going to criticize them for the the 2020 period. But once we started getting vaccines and the rates of COVID started dropping, I really think public officials should have said very publicly, go back to the doctor, get your blood pressure screened, get, get a mammogram, get, get your cholesterol tested. They should have made a conscious effort to say, you know what, it's safe, relatively safe to go back to the doctor. And people that are at risk for these traditional diseases got, should go in and get tested. And they did not do that. They continued talking about COVID nonstop. Which in your paper you say creates a a uh, culture of fear um, again in the beginning and certainly much of that is justified as you point out uh, but that fear does have a, a downside. Um, you chose in your paper to feature a particular disease. We have many things that can kill us, uh, but you you chose a CVD cardiovascular disease as the uh, perhaps the emblematic disease of all diseases to uh, to make your point. What made you choose that disease? Well, I, I knew from the beginning, you know, you know what I do for Pioneer. I follow a biotech and, and, and um, pharma policy. And uh, I'm getting a little out of my lane with this paper, but I felt like I had to because uh, I was I, I subscribe to all these healthcare blogs and, and websites, and I'm, I'm constantly following co uh, media around healthcare. And I started to see these staggering stories. Uh, one of them that jumped out at me was a CDC study that said during COVID, mammograms had fallen off the cliff by 87%, 87% fewer mammograms. Right, seven out of eight. Exactly. And I started looking at all the data for all different disease states, and, and I became overwhelmed because in virtually every disease area, people were not going to the doctor and getting the traditional tests. So I thought, I can't write a paper of this size. It's too big. I have to narrow it down. And the logical... Uh, the logical therapeutic area to focus on is cardiovascular disease because it's the number one killer. And it, it's been the number one killer 
even during COVID. Um, it, there were more, far more cardiovascular deaths in 2020 and in 2021 than there were uh, COVID deaths. Um, and, and I also, the, the data was also very alarming. You know, blood pressure screenings during COVID down 50%, cholesterol screenings down 35%, stress tests where you might pick up atrial fibrillation or other conditions were down 80%. I mean, the numbers were very concerning. And I thought I, sh I really should write about this. Indeed. So uh, all these tests that uh, helped keep us healthy uh, fell off uh, a cliff. Uh, and one has to assume people remained just as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable, uh, uh, being in lockdown with COVID. So uh, we just essentially turned off the light and, uh, 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 for all these diseases. Uh, one of your... Uh, um, one of the things we did early on in, in Hubwonk is uh, in the interest of helping people um, address their health issues, we promoted and encouraged people to use the technology that, that we're using right now, uh, this remote technology, call it te telemedicine, where you can get your doctor uh, from the comfort of your living room and perhaps uh, not have that non-zero risk of getting COVID while taking a trip to the, to the doctor. Your paper addresses uh, that uh, fact that telemedicine uh, was a compliment, but perhaps uh, maybe not the right path for, for everything and everyone. Yeah, Pioneer has written a lot about telehealth, and we're very enthusiastic about it. We think it should be reimbursed. We think it should be above. It, it should be easier to get in touch with your doctor, and telehealth is one way to do that. Uh, what I saw in the data concerned me. That concerned me was that in a telehealth visit during COVID, at least, you were less likely, for example, to get a blood pressure screening, less likely to get a cholesterol screening. You might get to talk to your doctor about one thing that's going on, but you wouldn't get all the traditional tests. Like if you go, I, I, I broke a rib a couple months ago. I had to go into the doctor, and they they did a blood pressure test, and they looked at a bunch of things that weren't related to my rib in any way. Um, and you, you weren't getting that. I don't think you were getting that in telehealth visits. And, and that also has a health disparity angle because minority communities tended to, to use health telehealth visits more than others. Um, I, that's surprising to me, but that was, that was what the data showed. So, uh, I'm, I'm an enthusiastic supporter of, of telehealth, but I think there's a quality issue that some telehealth visits need to be upgraded so that you're actually getting the diagnostic tests that are, that are essential. Yes, and in addition to our uh, shows on tele telehealth, we did have uh, actual uh, emergency room doctors who attested that uh, laying of hands is is, is vital. So um, uh, we need to see a doctor in real life um, uh, from time to time. But you also, in your paper, measure um, you, you mentioned the fall off of mammograms. Let's focus on the uh, the tests that relate to heart disease. How you know? Let's translate. Let's connect the dots. If I don't go to my doctor uh, or I don't get a test, share with me which tests. Ought to I have gotten um, that I'm not getting, or that the public generally is not getting, and how does that translate to a death? Well, I'm not a cardiologist, but I mean, I would think that blood pressure screenings are the number one thing that should happen. You're, you're going to develop heart disease, and your heart's going to muscles going to suffer if you're you're you have chronic blood pressure, a high blood pressure that's hypertension that's not being addressed. So I think that's the number one, and that's you know, that may be something that could be done in a telehealth visit, but right now that's not that common. So that's the number one thing I think that was missing. Cholesterol screenings, of course, if you're at risk for atrial fibrillation, there's a whole slew of tests that, that usually you have to go into your doctor to, to, to have uh, um, a, a stress test. There, there's all sorts of things that, uh, uh, that again, fell off a cliff during um, uh, COVID. And 
cardiomyopathy, a general weakening of the heart, same story. There are echocardiograms and all sorts of tests that can be done in the office if you're at high risk for some of these things and your heart muscle may be, may be weakening. But a lot of those tests have to, have to be done in the office. They, they can't be done in a telehealth visit. Now, we are seeing, and you probably see it on TV, that there are these devices where you can, they're selling them on Amazon. You put your two fingers on a device and it it tells you whether your heart is, is beating properly and it might be able to diagnose atrial fibrillation. I'm, I'm very encouraged by those. I think they should be in great use. Um, but some of them require you to go to your doctor and actually be taught how to use it and be connected to your doctor, not just you know take, take it for fun and see it on your phone. So I, I think the in-person visits uh, should have been encouraged uh, to a greater degree to see cardiologists if you're an at-risk patient or just a normal patient to just go in and get your BP and your um, and your cholesterol tested. Now, um, many of our listeners are thinking, okay, look, I should get these tests. I should see my doctor. Um, but of course, you know, I should brush between meals and, and these all kinds of great ideas that uh, a lot of people uh, might issue for, uh, for convenience sake that can't get around to it. Um, how would we be persuasive in measuring? Uh, there's a term, we use this in many of the uh, past episodes talking about COVID. We talk about COVID deaths, but we talk about excess deaths due to COVID. Uh, and, and much of what you're talking about, I believe, is people who will die because they've not taken the proper care to go to their doctor and that will not have been from COVID. Have you, or is your, your paper does uh, uh, attempt to quantify, measure uh, how many deaths that might be attributable to non-COVID deaths, but that are COVID-related owing to people not taking proper precautions with their care? Yeah, Joe, I think the answer is that we don't have good data on this, and we should. So mm -hmm. there is anecdotal data. For example, when my paper came out, the Boston Herald wrote a story about it, saying people aren't getting the traditional screenings. And the chief operating officer for Mass General, one of the most important hospitals in the country, went on record in that story and said, yes, we're seeing anecdotal evidence that, that our emergency rooms are getting flooded with patients that, with non-COVID conditions, so heart, heart problems and, and other problems. And so I think, I think there should be studies that should be done where you know, researchers go into the emergency room and they say, okay, you, you're, you're having uh, uh, some heart pains, chest pains. When was the last time you got screened? And we start to try to figure out the hard data on how many people that are showing up now in large numbers uh, are showing up in, in, in large part because they didn't get screened for 18 or 20 months. That, that, I think that would be very valuable data to have. And I think researchers should be out there looking at that. Um, Certainly, that, that seems like a, a useful um, tactic because, uh, well, heart, I think heart problems present dramatically and, and quickly. I'm also thinking about all those uh, um, diseases that take longer to kill us, like uh, cancer, uh, that we won't see. And, and if, again, if we were measuring for um, excess deaths from cancer, from COVID, well, those wouldn't be measurable now because uh, you would not know, that, that lump would not be found uh, for, for years, perhaps, where uh, a visit to the doctor might've found it immediately. Um, exactly, if you were six years from your last colonoscopy and COVID hit, you might be eight or nine years away from your colonoscopy. That, that's just not a good thing to happen. Right. And, and so you, um, so have you been able to in any way infer from, let's say, the data that we have, um, you, you had some um, numbers in your paper talking about um, comparing the deaths from heart disease uh, in 2020 versus 2021. Um, 
fortunately, the, the rates of death from COVID is, are falling. We've got effective vaccines and therapies. They're falling fa fairly dramatically, uh, whereas uh, heart disease is going in the other direction. Um, at what point, um, given that there's so many more people dying from heart disease than are dying from COVID, at what point uh, should it appear on the uh, radar of the public health? In other words, when should the headline in the Chiron on, on CNN start talking about heart disease deaths instead of COVID? I think it should have happened six months ago. I mean, that, that's what I wrote in my paper, that there should have been a public health campaign to encourage people to go back to their doctor and get some of these tests. Um, and I would even... I would even recommend, again, we don't know how ominous the, the tsunami that I, I warn about it, it is going to be, but I would even recommend that we set up, set up you know, tent cities in like um, neighborhoods like we did for the COVID vaccine or COVID tests, where people can go in and get a blood pressure screening and a cholesterol screening easily, particularly in minority neighborhoods. Just, we're going to do this for free. We're coming into your neighborhood. We're setting up in the parking lot come by and we'll, we'll screen your blood pressure. Those are the kind of things that public health officials should be doing in, in large numbers. Well, we're gonna to get to the, the, if you were king for a day recommendations, cause you had a few of those in your paper and uh, towards the end, but I just wanna put a fine point on it. At, at this point, I, I think you're comfortable in asserting that whereas COVID is a pretty bad uh, disease, it killed a lot of people, more than 750,000 Americans. Uh, so we don't want to make light of that. But at this point in the process, the, the fear of COVID uh, and that fear uh, that uh, keeps us from our doctor uh, is far more lethal and, in fact, a far greater public health threat than COVID itself and therefore uh, should be treated as it's COVID related because the fear is COVID related, but it should be treated as dramatically and, and comprehensively as we treated the actual disease of COVID. That's my view. I mean, COVID was the, the leading killer for maybe two months during this whole period. Uh, and cardiovascular disease was the number one killer for most of the months during this period. And uh, I just think public health officials should have had more context and, and said to people, look, you're most, the overwhelming percentage of, of older Americans are, are vaccinated. You can go to the doctor and you can get tested now. Go back now. That, that should have been happening uh, when vaccination rates started to peak. So uh, again, now we'll get to the uh, king for a day. I, there are many policy uh, makers who listen to the show, um, public health leaders, uh, maybe they knew it in the back of their mind. They said, okay, wait, you're right. Uh, we've been, uh, you know, COVID turned up to 11 uh, every day. Uh, we're, we're missing uh, the forest for the trees here. Uh, if you're king for a day, what would you change? What would be uh, some of the first things you would say and do? Well, I made three three recommendations in the paper. Uh, the first one I've already talked about, a major public health campaign to encourage people to go back to their doctor and get these diagnostic tests. That may be a TV campaign. It may be just public health officials talking about it when they get on TV and to talk about COVID. They also mention these other conditions and, and remind people to go back. So that that's the first thing, a public, public affairs campaign to remind people. Uh, the this, this second recommendation I make is make it easier for people to get medications. Um, so you, you do finally go back to your doctor and they give you a prescription and suddenly you have a $200 coinsurance payment and you don't fill your prescription. I just think for a year or two, we ought to have a, a reduction in copays and out-of-pocket costs so that people actually fill their medications and take them right away. There was, for example, a, a, a number that I saw in one of these studies, atorvastatin, which is the, the lipid-lowering drug, uh, Lipitor, when it was branded. It's the most commonly prescribed drug in the country. 
atorvastatin prescriptions were down 9% during COVID. And if you think about the number of atorvastatin prescriptions in a year, it's over 100 million, which means that there are 10 million fewer prescriptions for this lipid-lowering drug, important drug being prescribed. And I just think we got to get people back and, and taking some of these cheap generic medications for, for blood pressure or, or, or lipid-lowering. And on the more expensive med medications, we ought to have lower out-of-pocket costs so people can actually afford them. So that was sort of my second recommendation, to encourage people to get back on their meds if they haven't gone to the doctor or if they're going to the doctor for the first time in a year and they get diagnosed with something, they get encouraged to fill their prescriptions. Because we know when they show up at the pharmacy and they have a high out-of-pocket cost, a lot of people just walk away. They don't fill their script. So, so are you comparing, I, or actually in your paper, you did indeed compare, you said, look, we, uh, we know these vaccines work. Uh, we know you need them, uh, but we're going to make it the pot a little sweeter and uh, make it free so as to ensure uh, uh, the greatest uptake possible. You're comparing other lethal uh, or, let's say, life-saving treatments to a vaccine, and you're saying, let's apply the same logic uh, there to encourage, you know, to avoid this tsunami of mortality. Let's exactly. let's make those. Exactly. At least in a year or two. I mean, how many fewer vaccinations would we have had if they had to queue up first and pay a $20 copay before you went and got your vaccine. I think a lot of people would have just said, forget it, I'm not doing it. So I, I, I do think out-of-pocket costs are an important factor. There are many studies about it, and we should lower them for a couple of years to get people back on chronic medications. So that, that was my second recommendation. My third recommendation was for the federal government. There is a, I forget what the formal term is, there's a health preventative task force, it's called. Yeah, yeah, it's it, the US, United States Preventative Services Task Force. So it's got a long acronym, USPSTF. So uh, say more. Yeah, and they're, they're the, the group in the federal government that makes decisions about what diagnostic tests should be, you know, a matter of course in your annual physical. Uh, how, how, who should be tested, at what age? And they're a very uh, esteemed group, let me just say that. There's a lot of physicians from medical centers around. It's not just government bureaucrats. It's a, it's a lot of very, very serious medical professionals on that. And so when I... I, I, I got into this paper, I thought, I'll go onto their website. They must be apoplectic that they've made so many important recommendations about diagnostic tests that need to be taken for, for Americans. They should be apoplectic that they're not happening. And you know what? They weren't. <laughs> it, it looked to me on their website, and I don't want to criticize them personally, but it looked to me like it was business as usual. You know, oh, we're working on this test. It might tell whether a person in their 50s has diabetes. And, you know, they weren't, there wasn't an, a red alarm going off, like on top of a fire truck that said, wait a minute, we're the people that are, are trying to get people to do these tests and we're not mobilizing. We're not, we're not putting out press releases. We're not doing studies. We're not, we're not educating the pop population about how important these tests are. And that concerned me. And I, I just, so one of my final recommendations is these guys need to get engaged um, in this public health campaign and also start putting out some information and data about the, the important diagnostic tests that are not being performed, the important screenings that are not being performed. Yes, it seems to me that it would be, I don't know if there is such a term called applied health, but all the, the best science in the world does no good if it's sitting on a shelf in a drugstore or in the hospital, uh, just like vaccines have to go into arms to, to work. Uh, these these uh, treatments that are being developed uh, need to be uh, prescribed and taken 
uh, to, to help anyone. Um, is your future, you know, you've, you've stumbled across something that I think uh, we should have already, as you say, had a red, big red light on uh, at a national level, a, a massive mobilization. Uh, do you aspire to look at other, let's say, health um, uh, challenges? Um, I'm, I'm looking perhaps to a future episode on the effect of COVID on public health. We all know people who have literally been broken by this disease, either because they've been in isolation, uh, in fear, um, absolutely terrified. And, um, and uh, you know, these, I'm sure there's a measurable uptick in suicides or just in general depression. Um, do you aspire to, to, to help us quantify what's going on in, in other areas and other diseases in the future? Uh, that that's a very interesting topic to me, and I hope people that read my paper are are decide we, we've got to do more research in this area because I think there are conditions. You mentioned mental health, but you know the, the headlines yesterday was that we had a hundred thousand opioid deaths during the last year. I mean that's an astonishing number. That's staggering. That's much higher than 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 traffic deaths and. And nobody's talking about it. And, and one would think some of it is related to the isolation that happens when during COVID. Um, and there, you know, there, there are other therapeutic areas like diabetes and stroke and cancer where we should be looking at what the implications were so that if we have another pandemic like this, the lockdowns don't say don't go to the emergency room or don't go to the doctor. You know, they admitted during the lockdowns that you have to go to the grocery store. And they should have also said, you have to go to the doctor. And, and that really didn't come through very clearly. Now, I want, we're getting close to the end of our time together. Uh, you've been an, uh, you know, a scientist and a, and a, a member of, of the, uh, uh, I guess, the big pharma and health community for some time. Why do you think uh, public health has this blind spot? Meaning if you and I here in Boston on our podcast can uh, identify uh, far more lethal challenges to the American public, why is it that um, our public health officials are blind to this and remain focused on a disease that, thankfully, because of vaccines and therapies, is you know it, it, we're we're going to rapidly approach zero COVID death? Well, <laughs> I don't want to be too cynical and read into people's motives, but it seemed to me that uh, the COVID was a golden moment for the public health community, right? You could get on, if you were a local public health official, you could get on TV every night and talk about COVID. If you were a federal uh, health, a public health official, you could be on every cable news show every night. And I don't know why you would during a pandemic. You'd think you'd be at your desk working for solutions. But <laughs> a lot think. of these guys, and I'm not going to name names because I don't want to <laughs> make it personal, but a lot of these guys just never stopped going on TV, Right. And they realized if I talk about COVID, I can get on TV and I can get in the media and I can be quoted in the New York Times and, and everybody's going to ask my opinion. And, you know, that's natural. It's human nature that you would you would uh, it, bask in that kind of attention. Um, and it's also probably true that if you started talking about getting a blood pressure screening, the, the reporters would fall asleep. Uh, mm -hmm. They wouldn't be quite as interested in that topic. But nonetheless, I still think they should have plowed through and tried to get that message out. Right, They're not not fan servicing. They should be committed to actual public health um, and and uh, uh, shy away from the spotlight and, and focus on what 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 really matters. Well, we're doing our part. You're doing your part. Your research piece, I think, should uh, grab uh, the attention and perhaps uh, the ship will uh, uh, change course and we will uh, see public health officials. Uh, with the red light saying, go see your doctor. So that, if I'm going to uh, wrap up the show and, and come up with one massive recommendation is all of our listeners ought to 
uh, put down the podcast and uh, make sure they get the uh, see their primary care physician uh, and and take the medicine that they're prescribed as quickly as they can. I agree 100%. Or your specialist, your cardiologist, your oncologist, whatever your particular health situation is, just don't don't be scared by COVID. Go back and get get a diagnosis, get a screening, get a test. Oh, that's great. Well, we'll, we'll leave the show there. I uh, appreciate your uh, coming on and, and, and uh, writing such a, a thoughtful paper. Uh, and I think uh, we're, we're, we're part of the change uh, and, um, and, and you're a big part of it. Thank you very much for joining the show again, Bill. My pleasure, Joe. Welcome to the Hubwonk 360 Explainer. I'm here with Bill Smith of Pioneer Institute. Bill, how does the biopharmaceutical business model work? Uh, lots of people have opinions about the biopharmaceutical industry, but there's a broad... Oh. Uh, okay. Um, okay. Uh, let, me, let me try it again. Okay, this is Hubwonk360. I'm Joe Salvaggi. I'm joined now by Pioneer Institute's Bill Smith. Uh, Bill, we're going to talk about the how the biopharmaceutical business model works. How is it different from other industries? Well, Joe, it's it's very different from other industries, and I would there there are many ways I could talk about, but let me let me narrow it down to three. Uh, the first way I think it's different is that it's the industry with the largest R and D costs. So there are huge costs up front when developing the medicine. And then generally, there are low manufacturing costs once you discover the medicine, because it just you have to put the chemical together in a factory, and it may cost three or four cents a pill, but it's going to sell for three or four dollars a pill because you've done all this R and D, and that's kind of unique. That's not like the housing industry where the labor costs, the, the lumber costs, the, the concrete costs are, are part and parcel of the manufacturing costs, and they're high. Same with autos; you can't sell an auto for for. $10,000 if, if it costs $25,000 to assemble in labor and parts. So the industry is unique in that way. They have low manufacturing costs and high R&D costs. The second way I'd say it's, it's unique, and it shares this with a few other industries, but not all industries, is that it's indispensable to life. <laughs> when you make a product that people feel are indispensable, there's always going to be political fighting over price, just as they're fighting over, there's price fighting over gasoline prices currently. Any essential good for human beings, there's going to be in a, a fight over price. Nobody cares about the price of a Maserati because it's not essential to your life. But products that are essential to your life, there tends to be political wrangling about prices. And that's just a natural part of the industry. It's always going to be part of the industry. And the third thing I think that makes it unique is the patent system, where a branded company does the R&D. It's very expensive. Uh, there's a 20-year patent, but they only get maybe seven years of patent life where they're selling the product. A lot of times, the product is under patent for 10 or 12 years during the R&D process, so there's no sales. So for those seven years, they can charge a kind of monopoly price for that product, which is very, very high. But then the, product, the patent expires and the product price drops enormously. This is very unique. There aren't any industries like this. So if you buy a new car for $35,000, you can't get a used car for $100. But actually in the drug industry, you can. When the patent expires on a branded drug, the price will drop to almost nothing, to pennies. Um, and and that's, that's a unique feature of the industry. 
So I think what you're talking about is the generic drug uh, uh, industry. How does the generic drug industry fit into the overall life sciences industry? Well, it's it's an, it's an extremely important industry because uh, the the branded drug industry makes the discoveries. They do the R and D. They find the new products. But then once the patent expires, the generic industry, drug industry, all they have to do is manufacture it at a, at, at a low cost. And then it can be sold at an extremely low cost. So just one anecdotal example, when I was at Pfizer, Lipitor was our, our flagship product. Uh, people told me it was about $4 per pill, and there were tens of millions of people on it. So it was a multi-billion dollar drug. I bumped into a healthcare executive from Michigan the other day, and I asked him what the price of Lipitor was now that it was generic. It's called atorvastatin is a generic. He said, we pay about four cents a pill. <laughs> so it went from $4 to four cents. I can't think of another industry where that kind of thing happens, where the product is priced at a certain price, and then a patent expires or some other benchmark happens where the price collapses. Um, and and uh, it, that's a unique feature of the industry. And a lot of people don't understand that, that you shouldn't look just at the branded price of the product. You should look at the price, the average price of the product over 20 or 25 years because the generic price needs to be factored in. And I think we have a very good system in the United States where the drug goes generic, the price, the, the, it's a great innovation, and suddenly it's available to people for pennies. So we, we create one incentive to develop a new drug, uh, right? And then uh, that's the pat that's the patent they enjoy, and another path to uh, manufacture the drug in, in great quantity at low low cost. So two Precisely. paths, one drug. I see. Precisely. So you know, policymakers that criticize drug prices of branded companies, we could overnight by simply eliminating patents make drugs, all drugs, extremely cheap. Just get rid of all the branded patents. You would not have a new drug discovered ever if you did that. Um, That's but you, we, you would have the current uh, crop of drugs available for very cheap. We, we uh, freeze in amber uh, the current formulary and have no exactly. new, new innovation. Uh, finally, why are there so many drug advertisements on television? Why does the TV tell me what what drug I should tell my doctor to prescribe to me? Yeah, the, the advertisements are actually annoying to me when I watch football or something else. Uh, there's there are so many. It's counterintuitive to hear this for some people, but companies go on TV when they're competing with other drugs. They don't go if they, if you discover a first in class new drug, that's generally not advertised on TV because it's there's going to be demand out there already from the physicians who prescribe it and the patients. But if you invent the third or fourth diabetes drug in a certain therapeutic area in diabetes, you're going to go on TV and advertise that and highlight the features of why your drug is better and try to get your, your uh, patient, the patient who's watching that ad to talk to their doctor about it. It's part of the competition of the market that people say it doesn't exist in the drug industry. That's actually not true. The advertisements are a sign that it is a very competitive market. And those advertisements are very expensive and they would only spend the money if they thought we're going to distinguish our brand from the other brands already in the market. And let me also just tell the listeners that, that you know how they have these terrible side effects that are mentioned in these ads. So they say you could get oily discharge, you could get headaches, you could get this, you could or die. <laughs> that That is not something the pharma companies want to do. That is an FDA requirement. The requirement says that if you mention what this drug is indicated for, so if it's indicated for diabetes, 
you also have to mention any of the side effects that showed up in the clinical trials. Even if those side effects were quite small and minuscule and only touched a small percent of the percentage of the clinical trial population. So that's why you have those ads where they rush through the, the, uh, the side effects because it's, a, it's an FDA requirement. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Bill, thank you for joining Hubwonk 360 Explainer. Thank you, Joe. Okay, this is Hubwonk 360. I'm now joined by Pioneer Institute's Bill Smith. Bill, we're going to talk about quality-adjusted life years. What are qualities? Joe, qualities are a, a cost-effectiveness methodology that, that developed in many of the European countries that have national health services. And if you know anything about national health services in some of these countries like Great Britain, they have trouble paying for many of the products because they're free, many of the therapies because they're free and there's high demand. So they tried to invent a cost effectiveness system to rate and value different therapies and, and qualities are the most commonly used. Why are they problematic for patients? So qualities qualities measure the value of a drug based on its ability to prolong your life and to improve the quality of your life so you may sound you may say oh that sounds commonsensical but actually it's not so if uh, if you're 30 years old you have more life years and you can live longer potentially so a therapy for a 30 year old may be valued more highly than a therapy for a 70 year old same is true on the quality of life side. If you're living with a disability um, and someone else is not living with a disability, the medicine for the person not living with a disability may be rated more highly because it doesn't have it, the person doesn't have quality of life issues. So it gets problematic for a bunch of different populations. Um, and I can go into details. I found the same infirmities in the quality in cancer as well as rare diseases. Now, what countries use qualities? Well, it was famously invented in Great Britain, um, but most most countries use it. Um, uh, the Canadians, New Zealanders, Australians. Uh, the one major exception to the use of qualities, I think, is Germany. Um, and not surprisingly, Germany is second to the United States in the availability of new therapies to patients. They, they don't block access to new drugs as much as the countries that do use the quality. Now, are there alternatives to qualities in establishing the value of drugs? Yeah, there, there are a lot of people that try to come up with cost-effectiveness models. I'm uh, I'm a kind of market guy, <laughs> and I think we, that the- We are, all are here at Pioneer. <laughs> yeah, the, the common wisdom is smarter than the economist with a slide rule. And so I think the market tends to sort out patients, patients' families, physicians, uh, payers, uh, pharma companies, all of those actors have different opinions about the value of a medicine, and it ends up getting decided based on the market. Um, you know, if there's high demand by patients and physicians, health plans are more likely to cover it. If there's no low demand, health plans are not likely to cover it. This recent uh, drug approved by Biogen is an example of that. Um, they were hoping it would sell well in the commercial world, and and a lot of uh, a lot of physicians didn't prescribe it, and they had very low numbers, and there wasn't high demand. So a lot of health plans are not covering it in the commercial world. Now, would the uh, widespread use of qualities in the U.S. impact research and development, and and if so, what drug classes would be most impacted? Well, if the uh, the quality methodology that's adopted. Uh, is adopted by the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, which is the U.S. kind of home base of qualities. 
if that methodology were adopted, I'd be most concerned about the R&D on rare disease drugs because rare disease drugs have a very unique business model. You might have three or four or 5,000 patients. It's a super rare disease. And a company might spend $500 million or a billion dollars developing the drug. And then you only have three or 5,000 customers. So the price of that drug is going to be very high. The, the methodology used by the quality in the case of rare disease drugs don't have thresholds, monetary thresholds high enough to, uh, to capture those rare disease drugs and the business model of rare disease drugs. And, uh, you know, given that, that uh, cell therapies and gene therapies are the hottest and most promising and most exciting discoveries out there happening, those are rare disease drugs and they're going to be more expensive. And if the quality quashed them, they would quash a lot of important cures. So to wrap up, um, what would you say are the winners and losers when qualities used um, based on your observation, both here in the US where we do not use them and uh, around the world where they do? Who are the winners and losers? Well, the number one loser is, is patience. There's no doubt about that because uh, nations that use qualities have poor access to the latest medications that get approved. There's just no doubt about that. That's demonstrated. Uh, the winners uh, in the use of qualities are probably the politicians who are trying to cut the healthcare budget and they need a fig leaf that has the sound of being scientific. And the use of quality has this quasi-scientific aura around it. We're, we're crunching numbers, we're economists, we're, we're putting data into the computer, and we're gonna come up with a number that values that drug. And that allows politicians to make cuts in healthcare services and access to therapeutics under the cover of scientific uh, objectivity. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for being on Hubwonk 360, Bill. Thank you, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you would offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.